Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, when we got congressional questions, this is the guy that's got the answers. He covers Congress for the Independent. He's also an MSNBC contributor, formerly the Washington Post. He moves, he shakes, he gets things done. He knows people. He talks to people, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, our good friend, Eric Garcia. Great to have you back, my friend. Good to be back. Hey, uh, I love what you've written in the independent here because let's, let's start big picture and then we'll zoom back in for a second. Let's go. People talk about, you know, right now, cause we have the congressional handings with January 6th. We just did the gun legislation. We have the Supreme court stuff with not just abortion, but also a big environmental ruling getting ready to come down the pike. Yeah. Um, we have in a few uh, minutes right now, actually, literally. Yeah. yeah what's what's West Virginia versus EPA. It's why I'm kind of keeping an eye on it. Uh, things like this, but, this all revolves around the Congress and the Senate, but we talk about it usually in political terms and things like that. We don't talk about the mechanics of how Congress actually works. And that's right. where you start here. When you're covering Congress, we know about the gaggles. We know about meeting people in the rotunda. We know about the committee hearings. Talk just a minute as somebody that's there, the actual machinations of day-to-day business. There's a rhythm and there's a method to this. And that's a part of a lot of these stories that gets left out, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think one of the things a lot of people don't recognize is, and I've talked about this in the past, is that the House of Representatives, for better or for worse, has is basically a jalopy. It's basically, at this point, the other the two sides barely talk to each other at this point. Uh, so as a result, that's why you see a lot of this, the legislation getting done on the Senate side, because they recognize that they actually need to pass a bill. So for example, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was done on the Senate side and the uh, the gun legislation was the mostly recently passed, was done on the Senate side. And a big reason for that is because of the filibuster. What's interesting, what I've noticed is that ever since January 6th, there, is, there are a lot of hard feelings on the House side. Um, and of course it was revealed last week that multiple members of the House asked for pardons on the Senate side, the weird thing is, and, and, and Kirsten Gillibrand has talked about this with uh, with me, is that like they, for the most part, it's not like anybody's forgiven Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, but for the most part, they're just they've 
because of the way the Senate's set up, they've moved on. And they kind of have to work together because there's fewer of them and because there's the filibuster, they have to work together. So one of the other things I think that's important to recognize is that, and so what I, I wrote this piece about Senator Tom Tillis, is that a lot of times one of the things that benefits is that one of the, at least on the Senate side, there's a real inclination to negotiate, not let staff negotiate and let the and let the senators negotiate among themselves. Otherwise, things break down. And I think that was really one of the things that allowed for both the, the infrastructure bill and the gun bill to get through was that they kind of didn't let the staff get involved. They kind of just did it, you know, mano a mano. Yeah, and there's one other part to that that we need to touch on before we get into the specifics here. You talk about the staff negotiating as opposed to the senators. Um, I know we had our friend Jim Swift on who staffed both the House and the Senate in a previous life for becoming a writer. He's talked about this on the program. The yeah. turnover of staff in the House is one of the real driving factors of how the House works because you're running for every election basically once a year because it's every two years the election cycles. Yeah. Their staff turns over so much. Senate, you have Senate staffers that have been there 20, 30 years sometimes. It's a totally different beast. And when you're talking about effective government, like passing uh, negotiated legislation, the House just has some institution or, or institutional things against them, whereas the Senate it's kind of built in to have things work because you got people that are there longer, they're more secure, all that. That's something that you see as a reporter that the general public probably doesn't think of, but it's a huge factor in how these things happen. Yeah, it absolutely is. Being a Senate, being, 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 you know, one of the interesting things about it, what that I noticed was that during the January 6th hearings was, was the Cassidy Hutchison um, testimony. What was interesting to me is that I probably know like 10 or 15 different Cassidy Hutchinsons or Cassidy's Hutchinson. I don't know what the plural of that is. Uh, but they're, they're, you know, they're often young. They're often fresh out of college. They're often uh, very, very uh, fresh faced and not with a lot of experience. So there's just a lot of staff turnover. And just because of the high metabolism of the, of, of the house, a lot of people get run out very easily. There aren't that many. There are some lifers, don't get me wrong. There's some people who stay there for a long time. But most times people will usually jump over to the Senate side. Uh, there, there's also just like a, a house office that's just smaller to manage. Whereas the Senate, there are plenty of lifers. And there are plenty of, there's plenty of people who get things done on the day-to-day -day basis and who manage their bosses. And then of course there are some, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of term, the, the Senate is a lot older than the House. Um, and as a result for some of the members of the Senate who might not be all there all the time, the Senate might get, Senate staffers might carry the load a little bit more. Uh, you know, there were talks about this when Strom Thurmond was a senator that his that his that his staff ran things. There were talks about Robert Byrd, how when he wasn't there for the most part toward the end uh, from from West Virginia. So there, so, so the Senate's so it's not more glamorous, I'd say, but there is more of a I guess you could say a veneration of Senate staff because these are people who get stuff done on a regular basis. Yeah, uh, Eric Garcia, fine reporter, joining us. Okay, this leads us to the Tom Tillis piece you wrote, and we've linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the full piece. But, you know, one of our founding principles here is things don't happen in a vacuum. They have it in a sequence. Walk us through who Tom Tillis is, because he's not that well nationally known. Uh, of course, you and me both have ties to North Carolina, so we know maybe a little bit more than the average bear anyway. 
But walk us through the sequence, because like you just said, once you get to the Senate and once you're there for a second term, especially because now you got committee assignments and things, you have power. But there's a process to get in there. How did Tom Tillis get to be uh, a player in the U.S. Senate? Yeah, so Tom Tillis, I think he's one of those people who, again, he doesn't emit a lot of he's not on conservative talk radio or he's not on conservative media as much as like a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley. And he does it. And he, he, as of right now, he's not a chairman or anything of a big committee right now, but he's slowly but surely become one of the more effective Republican senators. And a part of that is because he got to start in the Cornelius Mecklenburg area of North Carolina. Uh, for a while, he was involved with like, uh, like in the area the, around Lake Norman, which is incidentally where Donald Trump has a as a as you know property. And what happened is he just moved up the ranks in the North Car- in the local politics before getting elected in the North Carolina legislature in 06, I believe. Then in 2010, then what happened is, of course, in 2008, Barack Obama won North Carolina. But in Charlotte Magazine is there's there's a great profile of him in Charlotte Magazine from when he was running for Senate. North Carolina Republicans didn't do that badly that year in North Carolina. So there was this feeling that, that maybe they could win. So what Tillis did is he basically left his job at IBM because in North Carolina, there's a part-time legislature. And he just basically traveled across the state, recruiting candidates, campaigning for them. And then in 2010, uh, Republicans for the first time in more than a century take over both houses of the legislature. 2012, his buddy from Charlotte, Pat McCrory, becomes the governor. And really, at that point, you know, because they haven't been in power for so long, they just ramrod through a lot of conservative legislation. That really gives Tillis the impetus to run for Senate in 2014. And of course, he's running against Kay Hagan. And that was, I think it was the most expensive Senate race at the time. And it was a it was a blood feud. It was uh, that was the first Senate race I ever covered. And it was just it was ugly. It was nasty. Uh, there was a lot of mudslinging until uh, it's narrowly won that race, but I think like only like 45,000 votes. Hagan actually did better than people that the, the, she probably could than like a lot of other Democrats, but it was just a bad year for Democrats. Tillis for the first term, he really doesn't stand out that much, but what he does do is he really tries to become somebody who Democrats can do business with. He said in 2016, he says, if they don't do criminal justice reform, I'm not ready for another term. And then the Senate Judiciary Committee, he helps negotiate criminal justice reform with Democrats like Cory Booker. And then, of course, what happens is in 2020, of course, uh, Cal Cunningham uh, runs against him and, of course, has that uh, sexting scandal. And and Tillis, you could argue he he probably would have won that seat because Joe Biden just didn't campaign that much in North Carolina. But the other thing you could argue is that he just got lucky. But depending on who you ask, but what ha- but whatever did happen is since then, he's accumulated a lot of trust and respect, uh, enough trust and enough goodwill from Senate leadership and enough respect from Democrats that he's somebody who they could negotiate with. In other words, you know, we used to just call this stuff politics, like, hey, he went out and raised for all these other candidates. Now it's his turn. Hey, he's easy to work with on stuff. So he, like, we have, we now have like, this new breed of politics where it's so online and it's so party focused and so ideologically focused he's almost like an old school politician where he just kind of goes and does the job doesn't he 
Yeah, he, John. Make no mistake, he's a conservative. I don't. I don't want to say that he's a. Sure, moderate. I just mean mechanically, like he. he yeah, does mechanically, the like uh, there, there are the people who you know. Uh, to to your point, he's the last of the dying breed. I think because, like, for example, to your point, Senator Rob Portman is retiring this year. Uh, he's another another. I guess you could say. I think the distinction is not. And Amy Walter has discussed this at the Cook Political Report, who's like the smartest woman I know in the world. Uh, smartest person I know in the world, probably. There are what I call governing Republicans, and there are firebrands. And Rob Portman and Roy Blunt and Pat Toomey, all of whom are retiring this year, uh, are what I call, and Richard Burr, are governing Republicans. They're conservatives, but they care about, you know, landing the plane. Then there are your Ted Cruz's and your Josh Hawley's and your, um, you know, your John Neely Kennedy's uh, who focus mostly on, you know, um, optics. And I think tell us one reason why he doesn't earn the ire of Democrats and one reason why he, why his Democratic challengers don't raise as much money as like your Amy McGrath's or your Jamie Harrison's or your John Ossoff or your Raphael Warnock's is he hasn't put himself out in the forefront as somebody who does that many offensive things to Democrats and he, he's not in Senate leadership for now. So that kind of inoculates him from democratic outrage. But in the same respect, I think what it does is that because he cares about governing and he cares about actually landing the plane and not just being on, you know, uh, being on, you know, Ben Shapiro's podcast all the time. Uh, he, he, a lot of conservatives don't necessarily trust him. So I, I think that's the real distinction. I, I actually used to say when North Carolina passed the bathroom bill, that was under Speaker Tim Moore, his successor. I used to say that never would have gone, gone to a vote in the General Assembly if he were Speaker, not because he wasn't you know, opposed to LGBTQ rights. He is. But it's because he knew that was bad for business. Yeah. And you said something key there, too, I think, to key in on is with somebody like Tillis, because he's not in leadership, this is, there's always been this, this group, whatever the makeup of the Senate is, there's always this floating group, you know, gang of four, gang of six, gang of eight, whatever. There's yeah. always this floating group that's not actually in leadership, but they're the ones getting done. There was reporting that Mitch McConnell basically literally told the Democrats like, Hey, I can't touch this, but go talk to X, Y, Z and Tillis. And Tillis was on that list that McConnell told him, was like, no, you go talk to them. They'll hash it out. And then we'll go from there. That's kind of not unusual for the Senate, and he's become that kind of a guy. Right. There are certain people who, because they have good relationships with Democrats, because they come with states from states where there are a lot of Democrats, there's this feeling that, well, we can get this done. I, the other person who's like that is uh, Senator John Cornyn, who, again, is a very conservative uh, senator, former attorney general of Texas. And in this case, after the shooting in Uvalde, um, McConnell basically he's both of them both of them I should say sit on judiciary so that the judiciary committee so this is their their jurisdiction McConnell basically recognized said he realized he had to do something and he realized if they didn't pass gun legislation now then Democrats would try to get rid of the filibuster and then they do it if they next time they get in the get in office and then it's game over so this was basically his way of saying it he says you can't negotiate with me but you can negotiate with Cornyn who's a former whip and you can negotiate with Tillis who you've negotiated with the past on infrastructure and that's how the and then, and then basically what happened is from what I understand is that um initially they said Murphy and Chris Murphy who represents Connecticut and cinema 
they were the two people who negotiated with Cornyn. And then Cinema said, we need another Republican. And that's how Tillis came about it being the, the fourth guy on this team. And then, of course, there were 16 other senators, part of a larger group that negotiated that, yeah. that, 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 that final deal. Yeah, Eric Garcia from The Independent. We're talking the Senate. We're talking Tom Tillis, a great piece he wrote. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into how that gun legislation actually went through. We're also going to talk about some politics. Uh, anytime you are trying to moderate as a Republican, you're going to run afoul of the Trump camp. Uh, he yep. not only went afoul of it, he kneecapped one of them. We'll get into that in his uh, code reading of Madison Cawthorn. More with Eric Garcia right after this on Hurt Tell. Yep. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Having a blast talking to our good friend, Eric Garcia. He does great work. Make sure you're following him. Uh, he writes for The Independent, MSNBC, other places from time to time. All right, buddy. We've talked about Tom Tillis, how the Senate works. We walked through how Tom Tillis became. Uh, he's not a shot caller, but he talks to all the people before the shots are called. I think that's probably yes. a fair way of explaining this. Uh, yeah. Let's talk the gun legislation real quick. Let's just set aside the particulars of it because, you know, there a lot of this was kind of shining up stuff that was already existing. There's some argument over yes. what it actually accomplishes, but they passed something, which two months ago, you would have said that would have never happened. How did the mechanics of this legislation get passed? The mechanics of it are really interesting because I think that there was really this feeling. I, I think, I think, it, I think it's important to say there are a few things I wrote about this. It was interesting because I remember when the negotiations began. I, I should say I've been covering, I've been a journalist now for, you know, professionally for eight years. Um, and that means that I've been covering politics in Washington ever since. So I've been covering Washington's response to gun violence for a long time now. And to the point that I'm just kind of like, this is, you know, nothing's going to happen on guns. And But the thing that changed, I think, but then, like, I noticed when the negotiations with Cornyn and Tillis and Cinema began and, and, uh, and Murphy was there was this general feeling of goodwill. And I think there are three things that I would attribute it to. One is that the National Rifle Association is just not as strong as it used to be. Uh, a lot of liberals like to think of the NRA's power as just the money that it gives to candidates. That's not the real thing. It's the NRA's ability to scare the bejesus out of its members and mobilize them that I think is the real power. But since the NRA's had a lot of money troubles and it's kind of gone uh, and it's you know tried filing for bankruptcy, that was one thing is that it just couldn't you know mobilize the troops. I think the other thing was that Democrats as a whole were unified on this. The last time there was gun legislation uh, for uh, in 2014, in 2015, 2013, the, uh, four Democrats defected 
Now, basically, all Democrats, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, Sinema was one of the negotiators, they were basically unified on it. The same for the House. And I think that was a big factor. And there was a trifecta. So you had a president who supported it. You had a Democratic House, Democratic Senate. And basically, all they needed was a few Republicans. And then the other thing, I think, was that there was a genuine trust. I think that, as I said earlier, McConnell knew he needed to pass something. Otherwise, the moment Democrats get a filibuster proof, like get 52 or 53 seats in a Democratic majority and a Democratic president, there is going to be an assault weapon ban. There is going to be a raise in the age of 21. So we felt like I need to do this to stave that off and not make it a campaign issue. Uh, and I think that and I think it worked. And I think the last thing was that there had been already a few bipartisan deals in the past two or three years or so, there was a bipartisan deal on COVID negotiations. There was a bipartisan deal on infrastructure. A lot of the same players who were part of the infrastructure deal were part of the were part of this. So there was generally this feeling that we know how to do this and we can do this. So let's do it. So th- I think I think that's what, what what led to it. Yeah, and the other interesting thing about this particular piece of gun legislation was. The initial people that came out and supported it were all uh, either not up for election or were retiring or moving on or whatever, but they did expand it a little bit. Uh, Our progressive friends aren't going to like this. Y'all just grab your chairs real hard. This is going to be a rough two minutes, but I just got to lay this out there. Uh, When Manchin and Cinema had all that pressure on them to get rid of the filibuster, they both used the argument, no, the filibuster lets us negotiate things. And they yes. got they got absolutely racked over social media and campaign ads. They got destroyed online for it. They've got some scoreboards going up now with some with a, some really important stuff, even for progressives, for moderates. They're they're putting wins on the board. Does that argument get a little fleshing out now? I mean, they're never going to get an apology or anything, but they're actually kind of getting some stuff done here. Well, what I was, what I said about this at the beginning when I, I wrote about this in the, during the negotiations was I said cinema had the most to gain and the most to lose from this because if Cornyn and Tillis walked away, then the immediate thing that people that progressives would say was, you see, she doesn't she her relationships with the Republicans don't even work out that much. Uh, they don't actually get things done. But if it worked then she could go back to Democratic voters in Arizona in 2020. She's not up for re-election this year. She's up in re-election in 2024. She could say, I got an infrastructure bill. I got gun legislation. We didn't need to get rid of the filibuster. So re-elect me. And I think that she has... She has a case to be made. That's not to say that there aren't going to be people, maybe people, particularly Democratic primary voters who aren't happy with, who are still not unhappy with her. But she can make the case. Manchin is, in a, of course, in a very different situation. He's in a state where Trump won every county. He has to work with Republicans. Cinema can now say, look, I, I rack up, like, while AOC gets a lot of retweets and, you know, a lot of other people, I actually get things done. You could argue that this gun bill was not everything that they wanted, and in the same way, you could argue that passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill allowed for Build Back Better to die on the vine. But she could very easily say, hey, that, like I actually do stuff and, and, and it works. So she has an argument to be made. Yeah. And the, the other thing there is, and I, we'll delve into this some other time, the Senate is an exclusive club. There's only 100 of them. It is. And even bipartisan across parties, they like to have a say in who they're working with every day. 
And I think they're looking at states like Arizona and that absolute dumpster fire of a primary they're getting ready to have. And they're looking at Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin in West Virginia going, you know what, whatever comes after that's going to be worse. Let's let's not burn her on this. There, there's definitely stuff like that that happens in the U.S. Senate, and they they think that way. No question. I mean, I, I think that's very um, – I, you know, I'll say this about Mitch McConnell, and uh, I can't speak for the rest of them, but I can say this, McConnell is very strategic, and he does it, and he also, McConnell, as much as conservatives may hate him for it, he remembers 2010 when Sharon Engel blew that race against Harry Reid, and he remembers uh, I was living O'Donnell. in Vegas at the time, I remember it vividly, that, it, whatever you saw in the national media, it was three times worse on the ground, it was bad. Right. Uh, she was just, she was just, she was unelectable. And, and then, uh, and she blew what should have been, you know, an easy race. And then Christine O'Donnell blew that race in, in 20, in 2010 against Chris Coons. And then, and then in 2012, you of course had Todd Aiken and Richard Murdoch. McConnell recognizes sometimes where he's just like, look, it might be better for us to hold off on this. And that's not to say he doesn't win. He probably would love to see Mark Kelly lose but he's probably looking at what Mark Brunovich is doing and what Blake Masters is doing in, in Arizona. And he's probably like, this is going to be bad and this will be a headache. And I'm sure he probably, even though he's endorsed Herschel Walker, he probably is looking at that with, you know, some sweater under the collar and, and, it, and it wouldn't surprise me. So I think that he's, I think that it's, again, you're right. It is very, they, these are very strategic people and they do like, and the, you know, it would surprise people how much, for example, Josh Hawley and Kristen Gillibrand work together. It would surprise people how much uh, Chuck Grassley and Elizabeth Warren work together, but they do on good government stuff. Uh, Rob Portman gets along really well with Sherrod Brown, A, because they're both Ohioans, but B, they also just care about landing the plane. So so, so to your point, it is a very professional club. And, and, and even, you know, another example, a lot of people, as much as people may rag on him, and I've given my fair share of criticism of him, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, you know, in 2018, Rubio didn't campaign for Rick Scott because he liked working with Bill Nelson, the, the Democrat who was the senator at the time. Yeah, now head of NASA. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a pro wrestling element to the Senate where they, they do one thing in front of the camera and then they go behind the camera like, all right, how do we get to the next thing? Uh, real quick, uh, senatorial power, of course, is not just in legislating. Uh, it's also in picking candidates. We talked about how yes. Tom Tillis made his bones in politics by picking winners and candidates. That's how you build up a base. That also means when it's time to run somebody, that's the guy to go to. Let's talk yeah. about uh, the soon to be former, thank God. Uh, representative from out around Asheville, Madison Cawthorn. Uh, I called it the code red. If you don't understand the reference, because we're starting to get old, my friend, I'm sorry to tell you, but that's, uh, that's a few good men. That's that's, they took the guy out. That was the problem. This was a code red. Uh, They, if you go and you understand how politics works, a phone call got made and said, okay, we've had enough. Let's get rid of him. Tom Tillis, it turns out was the catalyst behind that, or more specifically his staff and his office and those deep, deep North Carolina ties. Walk us through that one real quick, because that's an exercise in power when you can take out a sitting congressman uh, just because you've had enough. That's pretty impressive flexing. It is an impressive flex. And I think so. There's the stuff that a lot of people know about Madison Cawthorn that angered people, which was the jokes about the co- him talking on that podcast about cocaine and orgies. 
that was just the last straw. The real thing that peeved off uh, Tillis was last year in redistricting, because every year states had to do redistricting, and you know, every, every 10 years, I should say, and they had to redraw new maps. Cawthorn was being cute, acting cuter than he was. And he decided to switch districts and run against uh, and run in a district that was going to be made for a guy by the name of Tim Moore, who's the speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives. That angered a lot of people uh, because Moore was supposed to run for that seat. He's the speaker of the House, and that was Tillis' successor. Uh, he also threatened to, quote unquote, primary the hell out of anybody who voted for the infrastructure bill. And of course, Tillis was one of the negotiators on that bill. And then afterward, he bragged about bringing broadband to Western North Carolina. And that angered Tillis to no end. The, and I think what also some people worry is that by him trying to switch to that district that included the Charlotte area, some people thought that maybe one day he wanted to run for Senate and primary Tillis. But whatever, and so he, it was also maybe him protecting his own territory. But what? But for a lot of reasons, Cawthorn didn't do the job. It's you know one thing a lot of people don't recognize. So Cawthorn, of course, ran against a friend of Mark Meadows's uh, when Meadows went to go become White House Chief of Staff. And that you know that's fine to be an insurgent. But what happens is afterward, you usually have to rebuild your relate repair relationships. Cawthorn never did that. He kept on burning bridges, so that when he needed his friends, he didn't have any. And I think that's ultimately why it was, you know, one thing after another that finally Tillis and the rest of the North Carolina Republican establishment said, okay, enough. And Tillis said that Phil Berger, who's a state senator, was the one who, you know, kind of motivated him to get behind Chuck Edwards. So that was ultimately the reason was that there was enough infrastructure to take out Cawthorn. So I think a perfect... A lot of people have said, you know, why did uh, Madison Cawthorn lose, but Lauren Boebert did it? Well, for the fact of the matter is that Colorado has a Democratic governor and two Democratic senators. So there's not a lot of power within the Republican Party to fundraise and, and neutralize somebody. And in the same respect, Lauren Boebert wasn't talking smack about other Democrat about other Republicans. She was talking back about Democrats. So that's ultimately what led to it. Yeah, and let's not pretend here this is still some politics involved uh cawthorn had viable competition in his primary where bobbert and some of these others didn't if they had one they might go after you know the reason they haven't done this somebody's like why didn't they do that marjorie taylor green because they don't have a candidate running with her that could that could win if they had one they'd probably do it let's be adults that they they knew they could beat him and then that's part of the calculus here as well there was already blood in the water he also had multiple law violations for, you know, bringing a gun to a, trying to bring a gun on a plane and speeding tickets and having his license suspended. Marjorie, there just wasn't, there wasn't enough, there wasn't a viable candidate who could run against her in a primary. She had a primary challenger this last year, but it, I mean, this past go around, but, you know, Brian Kemp didn't get behind this challenger, you know, None of the, the the big power brokers in in Georgia got behind it, so it just kind of was allowed to wither on the vine. So, as you said, it's all about can this be done? Do we have a good candidate? Do we have all the things lined up? In Cawthorn's case, it just lined up. <clears throat> yeah, 
Eric Garcia, our good friend, talking a little bit about how power gets welded. Let's end on a little bit of a lighter note there uh, because these are some heavy topics. So uh, talking to Tom Tillis, you've interviewed a man, you know, did he really dress his dogs up as Kristen Cinema and Mitch McConnell? Because he that, did. He did. I, I was looking that. at the picture in the article. I'm like, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he has two dogs. He has uh, Tillis loves animals, and usually he brings his dog Theo. One time, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who one time he judged, he's like one of the good progressives. Um, and, and what happened is he has two dogs, Theo and Mitch. One neighbor for for Leader McConnell. Uh, and he dressed one of them up as Kirsten Cinema in a pink wig and a pink sweater that said "Dangerous Creature," and another one he dressed up as uh, as as Leader McConnell, but obviously Mitch. So, yeah, he he he's an animal lover, and he's been doing that dog parade for Halloween, uh, which he calls uh, a show of bipartisanship. Um, and for 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 our Boston listeners, that's not bipartisanship. That actually means bipartisanship. Uh, but, but he, uh, but, but, but yeah, that, that's something that he's been doing ever since he was a Senate and he, he, he likes his animals and he, and he knows, he knows his dog breeds. So that's the other thing. So. Congress actually does. And the Senate, I think participates, they actually do like this dog march thing through the Capitol every so yes. often too, which is kind of a big deal. The kids usually come and there's some camaraderie stuff in the U S Senate and the house, even with all the nonsense that's still, you know, the congressional baseball game, things like this. Yeah. Good, good. To let people know that there's still some human beings up there doing human things. There are legitimate friendships. Uh, there, you, you know, what was interesting is that when um, when Senator Roy Blunt announced he was retiring, incidentally enough, one of the people who was most distraught by it was Representative Emanuel Cleaver, a black Democrat from the House who's a preacher. And Blunt apparently just said, "Let's just focus on getting things done now because they're both from Missouri." And uh, and Klobuchar and Blunt get, get along really well. Uh, yeah, there like there are some there's some legitimate there's some legitimate friendships there. Uh, Romney and John Tester, Mitt Romney and John Tester get along really well, which you would not think that that would ever work because Tester's of course a farmer and Romney is Mr. Bain Capital, but they get along. Yeah, next time you're on, we're not going to take time today. We need to talk about these videos Corey and Tester have been putting out because yeah. they 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 really toe the line between you know goofily lovable and cringe. So we'll talk about yes. that next time you're on. Uh, Eric Garcia, you're fantastic. We love having you on. We appreciate you being a regular on Herd Tell. Till we get you back, let folks know where they can follow you, your writing. This piece is in the independent. We'll make sure to link to it. Please make sure you read and share it. Let folks know about your social media and everything you got going on, my friend. Follow me at Eric M. Garcia. Uh, on Twitter, you can follow me on Instagram at Eric M. Garcia14. Uh, I, of course, write for The Independent. I'm a columnist for MSNBC. Uh, my book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, came out last year through HarperCollins. It is coming out in paperback August 3rd uh, with a new afterword um, about the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, that is coming out in paperback. Uh, and as always, it's always fun being on here. Yeah, and when the paperback comes back, I already told you, we want to have you on and kind of rehash that because we covered the book when it first came out. Uh, because those are human interest stories. I'd love to update some of that. So we'll definitely have you on to talk about the book. We Great will book. We'll be Make doing sure. it soon, my friend. We'll put a link in there for that too. All right, Eric Garcia, you're the best, buddy. Appreciate your time today, sir. Take care. Thank you, sir. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.